I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 20th, 2022, which, by the way, is also National Voter Registration Day, so make sure you're registered and that your status is current. Coming up, we'll discuss how brilliant and wily ecosystem engineers, beavers, are gaining believers for their ability to enrich habitat for other species, making landscapes less susceptible to wildfires and floods, and help humans survive in an ever-warming climate. Our guests are Aaron Hall, senior aquatic biologist with the Defenders of Wildlife, and Jessica Duran, she's a wildlife biologist with Ecometrics. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A new report published yesterday in the journal Nature Human Behavior urges communities around the world to foster respectful communication between people with opposing political views. The need is urgent, the scientists say, because right now there's too much incentive to, quote, caricature and mock those on the other side. The scientists point out that these days, Republicans and Democrats assume they're being demonized by the other side anywhere from 50 to 300 percent more often than it actually happens. This us-versus-them mentality damages a community. But demonizing an outgroup does offer an advantage. It's a quick way to increase engagement. So, on social media, in partisan news and commentaries, quote, users are incentivized to increase antagonism, facilitate the spread of misinformation, and stoke both tribalism and moral outrage, unquote. To reduce this us-versus-them mentality, the authors advocate more political ways to reach compromise, such as open primaries and also ranked voting, where voters list their top two or three candidates, and instead of turning to a runoff election, the overall majority candidate wins. The authors also recommend that people with opposing views have the courage to build skills that allow them to talk with each other in respectful ways. Who are the scientists writing this report? They include researchers from Duke University, Northwestern University, Johns Hopkins University, the University of California at Berkeley, Stanford, and a nonprofit known as Essential Partners. Essential Partners is best known for helping leaders in Boston, on both sides of the abortion issue, get together and talk. These talks happened after a pro-life advocate shot and killed staffers at a Boston Planned Parenthood facility. You can see the entire video interview about this on the Essential Partners website. Here's an excerpt where a leader at the Planned Parenthood clinic says she was terrified to go to the talks. This is why she went anyway. The most important thing that I learned as part of the dialogue is that there is no more fundamental or profound responsibility of a leader than to understand the differences of opinion that are around you, not only between you and your opposition, if you will, but between you and those who are on your side. A leader of the Boston pro-life movement said this about their conversations. I have to tell you that I was very scared. I did not know my opposition, except as they were portrayed in the media. And I was terrified of the hostility that I was going to meet when I sat down to talk with these people. But very early on, 
in the talk, in the dialogue, I realized that I could like these people. <laughs> really. <laughs> that these people were as committed to their position as, as I to mine, and that I felt that we could develop a relationship, and we did. We came to love each other in spite of the fact that neither one of us changed our opinion in the least. In the new report published yesterday in Nature Human Behavior, the scientists contend that respectful and caring connection between people who hold opposing political views can help rebuild trust. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. In other headlines, it looks like La Nina is staging an exceedingly rare three-peat. The weather-influencing climate pattern will likely continue for a third consecutive winter. That's according to recent announcements by NOAA and the World Meteorological Association. If it does, it would be only the third La Nina three-peat on record. La Nina is characterized by large-scale cooling of the sea surface in the central and eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean, coupled with changes in atmospheric circulation. These shifts typically herald significant weather impacts around the globe. For large parts of the northern tier of the U.S., La Nina can tip the odds in favor of wetter conditions. Meanwhile, La Nina winters tend to be drier across the southern tier. This includes the southern portion of California and the American Southwest. With 94% of California in severe drought, the state's water supplies have shriveled dramatically. A three-peat La Nina would also be terrible for the Colorado River Basin, a key source for water for 40 million people. The region remains stricken by a decades-long megadrought, the worst in 1,200 years, and consumption continues to outstrip supply. The result? Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the two largest U.S. reservoirs by volume, have shriveled to record low levels. The seven basin states and the federal government have been at odds over how to dramatically reduce water consumption, and experts agree that both carrot and stick approaches are, so far, are mere band-aids, and that a day of reckoning looms ever closer. Thanks to contributor Tom Yulesman for that report. If you're like me and had your genome scanned by a company like 23andMe, you might have discovered that you carry some Neanderthal genes. But neither of us would have that form of a gene called TKTL1. This is a gene for a protein made when a fetus's brain is first developing. A mutation in the human version changed one amino acid, resulting in a protein that is different from those found in Neanderthals, other hominid species, and non-human primates. So what's the big deal about this gene and the related protein? To answer this, we need to go back more than 500,000 years ago, when the ancestors of Neanderthals and modern humans were migrating around the world. Something happened, causing a big change in the brains 
in the ancestors of modern humans, and this change probably gave them a cognitive advantage over their Neanderthal cousins. Fossil records show that human and Neanderthal brains were roughly the same size, meaning that the neocortices of modern humans are either denser or take up a larger portion of the brain. When the first sequence of a complete Neanderthal genome was completed in 2014, 96 amino acids, these are the building blocks that make up proteins, were found to differ between Neanderthals and modern humans. Scientists have been studying this list to learn which of these changes might have helped modern humans to outcompete Neanderthals and other hominins. These are now extinct species related to humans, modern humans, that is. To scientists at the Max Planck Institute of Molecular, Cell Biology, and Genetics in Dresden, Germany, the TKTL1 gene stood out. As I suggested earlier, the mutation in the human version probably dramatically increased the cognitive ability of our ancestors. The researchers suspected that this protein could contribute to modern humans' cognitive advantage because it affects the rate at which fetal brain tissue grows. Specifically, the protein increases the proliferation of so-called neuroprogenitor cells, which go on to become neurons as the brain develops in the neocortex. That's the region involved in cognitive function. The researchers were surprised that such a small genetic change could affect neocortical development so drastically. So they tested their hypothesis by inserting either the human or the Neanderthal version of TKTL1 into the brains of mouse and ferret embryos. The animals with the human gene had significantly more neural progenitor cells. When the researchers inserted the Neanderthal gene into neocortex cells from a human fetus, they found that the fetal tissue produced fewer progenitor cells and fewer neurons than it normally would. The same was true when they inserted the ancestral version of TKTL1 into brain organoids. These are mini brain-like structures grown from human stem cells. But the only way to prove that the gene has a role in cognitive function would be to genetically engineer mice or ferrets that have the human form of the gene and compare their behavior to that of animals that express the Neanderthal version. In the meantime, I'm happy to have the modern version of the gene. This research was published last week in the journal Science. For KGNU and How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. Some people consider them pests, while others praise them as saviors of ecosystems, maybe even the whole planet. Whatever your impression is of beavers, those furry, swimming rodents the size of a small dog that shape wetlands and the dams they build, they're gaining more and more attention among scientists, as well as landowners and government agencies. That's because a growing number of scientists are showing that beavers are ineffective and cheap, weapon in the battle to make humans and our landscapes much more resilient to climate change, droughts, wildfires, floods, and more. 
Our two, our two guests today are so-called beaver believers. Through their work in the field on private and public land, they're studying the benefits as well as the complications of bringing once plentiful beavers back to landscapes throughout the American West. Jessica Duran is a wildlife biologist with Ecometrics. It's a group of scientists devoted to improving ecological health to areas in Colorado and elsewhere. And Aaron Hall is senior aquatic biologist with Defenders of Wildlife based in Denver. Jessica, in fact, is in the field somewhere near Kremlin, so she's joining us via phone. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jessica. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for hosting it. I'm excited to talk about it. Great. And Aaron, thank you for coming in the studio from Denver. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Great. So I want to dive in and say what inspired me to do this show now on beavers is I was struck by this paper published just earlier this month in the journal Bioscience, where a group of scientists led by this guy, William Ripple, proposed that beavers, along with wolves, should be a major piece of the so-called America the Beautiful initiative. That's basically the ambitious executive order that President Biden signed soon after taking office, setting a goal of conserving at least 30% of U.S. land and waters by 2030. Jessica, I want to start with you. You're right there in the field. So why, why do you think they're this important? What makes them so critical, along with, say, beavers, as a species in preserving and shaping landscapes? Jessica? Um, wow, that, that is a lofty goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean... Beaver. I've been studying beavers and, and beaver-mediated wetlands for quite a few years now, and I think what strikes me as being so important about these systems is primarily that they're a naturally occurring system, right? So um, there are a lot of benefits of beaver-mediated wetlands um, that are being studied and published on right now, and and that is awesome, and I would expect that we would keep studying these systems and find more and more benefits. Um, but really what I think is is such an amazing opportunity is that these systems used to be so widespread across our whole continent um, that if kind of as restoration practitioners or as ma- land managers, if we can start to get these systems back on the landscape again and enough of them in connected areas, it can be this self-sustaining system. So we don't really have to, like, engineer or invent something new. We just have to enable what once was. Yeah, and Aaron Hall, bring us back, since Jessica alluded to these natural landscapes, a kind of then-and-now snapshot, because they were hugely plentiful, not so much now. Right, so imagine the North American landscape before beavers were trapped out, and, you know, we... We estimate between, you know, upwards of 90 plus percent of beaver were trapped out during the fur trade. So just imagine, you know, that loss of influence on the landscape, you know. And you're talking kind of early, mid-1800s exactly. is when they were pretty much decimated, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, every stream in North America, except for like really dry streams in the southwest or really steep streams, would have had beaver on them and would have had beaver complexes and beaver dams and beaver lodges, you know, every half a mile, every mile, like every stream would have just been chock full 
of beavers. So, you know, what we think of as a healthy stream now is, you know, that sinuous ripple and run. Like, that's not really what the baseline should be looking like, right? It should be, you know, beaver dam and wetland and beaver dam and floodplain and all of that. Like, that's the baseline of what these habitats should look like hmm, messy, in North America. Complex yeah, messy, complex, <laughs> lots of different microhabitats, lots of surface area, lots of groundwater. Like, that's what Jessica is talking about that we need to try and work our way back to. And Aaron Hall, maybe if you could describe some of the top benefits that you're looking at and, and have already been researched, uh, ecological and also economic benefits. Right. So again, think, thinking about what beaver do to a landscape, you know, they take a rather plain, simple stream and they, they put a dam across it and they put a dam across it because they want deep water for their own safety, right? That's their safety zone. That's why they do this. And they do it selfishly for themselves, but the benefit is that you know by building a dam, pushing the water out, um, they're creating you know more surface area of water. They're creating more wetlands, different wetland types. They're pushing that water down into the ground, and then that water resurfaces later on in the season. So they're really making you know new habitat for other critters that need it, and you know providing more water later on in the season for humans as well. Give an example of, since you're an aquatic biologist, how they benefit fish, particularly, well, some of the endangered species you're working with, but others as well. Yeah, so specifically here in Colorado, the, all, all of the native cutthroat trout you know, really benefit from beaver habitat. And uh, they will use that as overwintering area, you know, those nice deep ponds. These trout tend to live in smallish streams. So those beaver ponds, you know, nice and deep. Uh, great overwintering habitat that they other, otherwise wouldn't have without beaver in the landscape. Yeah, so before I get more big picture, I, I would imagine there are many listeners like myself who've encountered their cool lodges and dams and tried to backpack walking across very marshy and <laughs> difficult to traverse terrain, but if anything, catching a glimpse but not actually seeing them. So Jessica, I know you're working with them, I believe, right now, maybe both of you, but starting with Jessica Duran. If you could describe, like, what are they like and what, what's been one of your coolest encounters? Um, gosh, you know, I'm, always, I'm really struck by the variety. You know, they're, they have a few habitat requirements. You know, they need a perennial water source. Um, they need a lot of space, and they need those, those woody species in the riparian area because that's their their food source and their building materials. So willows or aspens or something like that. But beyond those specifics, they can really do a lot of different things. Like you'll see them in more rocky streams. They might build with more rocks in their dams, or if there's no rocks around, they'll just use all mud or they're, um, they can be kind of opportunistic. They're habitat. A lot of times, I mean, their behavior, they're a lot of times they're busy, they're out and about more at night, but that's not always true. So they'll seem to kind of change their behavior a little bit based on um, kind of perceived danger is is the idea. Um, so I, I really like the variability. It's um, interesting to see, to observe, and then it's interesting as a practitioner also to think, that you know, there's not one thing beavers do in a system. Um, <laughs> there's actually a lot of different things they do and a lot of different ways that they'll do it. So if we want to try to restore a system, how can we 
how can we kind of approach it with enough creativity to, to mimic what they're doing? And it seems one of the things that's fascinating about them, and maybe not so different from a lot of other species, is they're very family-oriented and, I think, matriarchal, right? Which also makes them difficult to capture and relocate. Talk a bit about, Erin, about some of their behavior and how what what some of your most interesting encounters have been. Yeah, so they live in these extended family units. So within a lodge, you have a mated pair, and then this year's young, which are called kits, and then last year's young as subadults, and even sometimes the young from the year before that. Oh, it's a very so, multi-generational. Yeah, so they live in, you know, the this year's young learned from the previous two years, like they teach each other. And then every spring, the oldest juveniles get kicked out to go find their own home. And, and, you know, and during a dispersal event. And the parents change the lock on the doors? Oh, I think they do, yeah. It's beaver are territorial, so, like, they, they do, you know, set up territory. So when those young of the year are out exploring, trying to find their new habitat, they might encounter already occupied habitat and get kicked out of that as well. Interesting. Yeah. And what strikes me as really interesting for beaver is just on the behavioral side, like, they're, you know, we tend to see them just the top of their heads swimming along the water and they're really, you know, agile and, and athletic and, and smooth in the water. But if you see them on land, you know, either climbing up over dams or moving between ponds on, on the land, they're, they're just super awkward and <laughs> like moving know. sausages. Exactly. So it's just, it's really funny to, to watch them on land. Cause like, you know, that's, that's why they build the water. Cause that's their safe space, but it's just really funny to watch them wander around on land. It just looks really funny. You know what they're made for. Yeah. Um, and Jessica, I mean, starting with you, Jessica Duran, talk about the different kinds of restoration methods, including these so-called beaver dam analogs that are human-made, but to look and act like beaver dams. Like why? And other forms of actual beaver reintroduction and relocation. And, and why? Yeah, so what we found um, in studying a lot of different areas, kind of the headwater systems here in Colorado, is that there's a lot more suitable beaver habitat than there are beavers occupying that habitat. So we're thinking something kind of must be going on with, um, with their populations and Maybe during that dispersal phase that Aaron's thinking about or mentioned, um, beavers are, are really quite vulnerable. So um, one approach that we've taken is doing restoration efforts, uh, mimicking the role of beavers in areas where there's the site seems pretty much perfect, except for there's no deep water habitat. So a, a young dispersing beaver um, would have nowhere to hide. Uh, and again, you said not only they need water, but perennial water, like a reliable yes. <coughs> source. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, because they live in the water. They need, they need water all the time. Um, so these, the beaver dam analogs that you're talking about, they're getting a lot of attention right now, and probably because they're, they're kind of attractive. They're simple, and you're mimicking something um, that the beavers do, and they're really fun to build. Like, if you just think back to your childhood days of, like, basically <laughs> putting sticks and mud in the river. Building forts, <laughs> getting muddy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what my summer consists of. That's um, awesome. So we are, we are um, big supporters of this work, and we've seen it 
we've seen it work. You know, we've gone out and built these mimicry structures, these beaver dam analogs, and um, and in some cases you see beavers move in, and that's just amazingly satisfying when that happens. Um, but I do want to also mention that this is it is just a tool, you know. So um, we really want to encourage, like, do do the deep thinking and and um, consideration of why you're applying that tool. Otherwise, it can just be a pile of sticks in the water. <laughs> and so, Aaron- I mean, site locate site site selection is is really really key um, because beavers do change the landscape a lot and um, they have a big influence on it and there's a lot of benefits to that but if it's not in the right spot um, it can just lead to a lot of conflict so I think the more we can homework we can do on the front end and kind of trying to figure out just the right place to encourage beaver activity um, I think it's going to help us in the long run. And Aaron Hall, I want to ask you, since you're working largely with a very complex equation between landowners, namely ranchers and farmers, and beavers, what are some of the complexities, conflicts, and maybe an example of how they've been resolved? Right. So as Jessica was saying, you know, when you have, you know, beaver are recolonizing the landscape that they would have already been in, you know, humans haven't had beaver for a while. So when they come onto their lands, you know, they do potentially cause conflicts. They might take down some trees or cause some flooding. And I work with a lot of landowners to uh, try to alleviate those things and, and convince landowners that you know they can coexist, if you will, with beavers. So beaver can have their space and humans can have their space. And there's simple ways that you can make that happen. You know, either by putting fencing around the trees that you want to protect or building simple. Um, fences to protect culverts or other infrastructure. So uh, that's what a lot of my work is, is, is working with landowners to, you know, who, who care about the beaver, but also care about their livelihoods and, and the impacts of beaver and trying to find that combination. Fascinating. Well, so want to continue this and we'll continue another time, including looking at sort of the national picture and where there is buy-in of state agencies and federal agencies. And sounds like there's momentum on that front. So I want to say thank you so much, Jessica Duran, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Aaron, it was good to talk to you. Good to hear you. Yeah, same. And thanks so much, Aaron Hull. Thank you. That was Jessica Duran, wildlife biologist with Ecometrics, and Aaron Hull, an aquatic biologist, senior aquatic biologist with Defenders of Wildlife. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional headline contributions from Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, and contributor Tom Mulesman. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Cider House Rules and Beats Antique. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.